want to make a confession this morning, and um, this may not come as a shock to people that know me really well, but here it is. I'm not always on time. No. Uh, who knows me well? My wife, she had a little chuckle. Uh, my kids, um, Cecilia, who I pick up from the high school every day, she's probably like, yeah, duh, the sky is blue, you're not on time. Uh, these are some things we can count on in the universe. Um, but I'm not always on time. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'm close. Sometimes I'm not close. But my problem is I try to catch, like, for instance, my younger kids at elementary school that got the car line. It's, and there's the people that show up an hour and a half early to be the first one, which I would call them foolish people. Because why would you spend an hour and a half in the car line? I don't know. And then there's me who's trying to catch the very end of it right as the last ones were pulling up and I can just smooth right through and it only took me 30 seconds rather than 40 minutes waiting in the line. But I'm not always on time. I don't time things right. I think I can do more than really can. And um, for some people, if you're a military background, that's a moral issue. If you're not on time, you are uh, a moral failure. Um, others, if you've, uh, you've traveled any, you've gone to other cultures, people don't know what time is. What is time? Time? Time what? Clocks? What are clocks? You know, and they just kind of go by uh, relationships. And, and if so, if you, we were in an international church, if there was going to be a party, we figured this out quick. Because we were like, you know, white people, and we show up at the party, it says, we're going to have a 5 o'clock party or 7 o'clock party. Okay, we'll show up at 7. And we come, we're like, they're still like vacuuming and putting this stuff out. Like, okay, well, I thought there was a party here. No. Oh, yeah, there is. Hey, how you doing? So we're always the first ones until we realize 7 means 9. Or, or five means seven, or whatever it might be. It always was not the time, because what is time anyways? It's all about relationships. And if they were somewhere else before that, uh, they were in the middle of that. And they'll get on to whatever they gotta be. Okay, um, so that confession, I'm part of, maybe I'm just from a different culture. That's really what it is. Um, but as we read the story today, we're gonna be in John chapter 11. Um, we, we, it would appear that Jesus would side with me. I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, but it appears that Jesus does not concern himself in this story with being on time. He actually makes a delay in this story that does not make sense to onlookers um, and the participants of the story. This delay is, is, is mind-blowing. It doesn't make any sense. And this is not just, okay, you have to go in the office and sign your kids out now because you're late. Um, which I have to do occasionally. Um, but this is a life and death situation. And Jesus decides to just take his sweet time. And to do whatever he wants to do on that. And so we're going to look at that. And this is the story of Lazarus. In, uh, you may be familiar with this story. We actually, in fact, uh, we, we looked at this story less than a year ago on Easter Sunday. So I know you keep track of all your notes in the file. And you got that book. And you, you were pulling them out and looking at them. So this may become as just a refresher from you looking at that sermon and really meditating on it. But if not, and if that's gone through your mind, and just like it did mine, like, didn't I preach on this at some point? And I had to dig back there. Oh, yeah, I did. Um, so we're going to look at it again because that's, that's just how it works in life. We forget things. And it's good to be reminded. So John chapter 11. Uh, we're going to read it together. And then I want to look at, if you have your notes, you can follow along. And actually, we'll look at... In a, in a second, I'll fix an error. I made a mistake. So I'm not actually on two confessions. I make mistakes and I'm not always on time. This is crazy. Wow. How revealing. Yeah. Okay. I'm willing to admit. Now, my wife is always on time and never makes mistakes. 
That's actually I'm alive right now, number three. All right, so let's get to the Bible. This is this is better than me. <laughs> Alright, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. Some of us have been sick recently. No fun being sick. If you had the H1N1, H5N4, 3, 2, and 1, no fun. Influenza A, B, and C all mixed together. This guy had something. Something caught him up. Bird flu, Ebola. I don't know what he had. He was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with a hair. Who, who remembers that story? All right, there's actually a couple stories in the Bible, so commentators kind of, which Mary was this? Was this the adulterous Mary who did this? And the Pharisees like, oh my word, does he know who this woman is? Or, in fact, in John, if we look on to the next chapter, which we won't do right now, but uh, we find that a result of all of this story, Mary does, in fact, pour perfume on Jesus' feet. So a lot of people say they just pointed ahead to chapter 12. Um, verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. So send them a text or a carrier pigeon or smoke signals or whatever they did. Send a message. The Lord, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus said he's not going to die. He's not going to end in death. That's what they thought, at least. That's what it sounds like. God's going to get glory. So either maybe this is not a big deal. It is a big deal. God's going to get glory some out of this, but he's not going to die. Who knows? Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus wasn't the girl. Verse 6. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, if I was a certain type of preacher, I'd say, everybody would after me, he stayed. And he would say, he stayed, right? I don't, I don't like that type of preaching, personally. Because I don't like people telling me what to do. That's another confession I make. Another thing I got to let the Lord deal with me on. All right. Numbers, verse 7 here. So he stayed two days. Not going to end in death. He stays. Must not be a big deal. That's what the disciples. We're going to read about disciples here. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Okay. They look a little confused, just like we are sometimes. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So they're north up by the Sea of Galilee. Okay. They're going to come down south to Judea, which is the southern region by Jerusalem. That's where Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, but Rabbi, verse 8, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. We're safe up here by the Sea of Galilee. People aren't trying to stone you up here. It's okay. It's your hometown. It's where we're from. Go down there. It gets a little crazy. They just tried to kill you. What's going on? And yet you want to go back there? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by the day will not stumble, for he sees this by this world's light. It is when he walks by the night that he stumbles, for he has no light. I'm sure the disciples were like, Yes. <laughs> a lot of times Jesus spoke in these, par these analogies and parables, and we find the disciples don't always understand it. Just like sometimes we don't understand what God's telling us. We read the Bible. What does this even mean? We have to research. We have to go a little bit deeper. Not everything connects with us on the moment that it's being said. God may be showing something years down the road like, ah, now I get it. And that's usually what happens with the disciples. It's like, oh, that's what he meant. So here they are. He's talking about the daylight and stumbling. They're like, 
I thought, what are we talking about here? Verse 11. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go there to wake him up. Okay. Um, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. So clearly, they're not, not tracking with Jesus here. Um, okay, he's not going to die. He's sleeping. Why we got to go all the way down and risk our lives to wake this dude up? Because if he's sleeping, maybe he gets better. Maybe when you had the flu, the H2N3, whatever you had, you slept a little bit and then you got better. So they're thinking, We're not, Jesus, what are you talking about? This is, this is crazy. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. They're confused. And that actually is a pretty common analogy in the Bible in that time to say someone had fallen asleep. That was pretty typical of saying death. So this wasn't that far-fetched, but they still weren't tracking with him. Verse 14, so he told them plainly that Lazarus is dead. Wait a second. Verse 4 just said he wasn't going to end the death. So what's going on? This is getting confusing. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. What? So that you may believe. Believe what? Well, let us go to him. You gotta imagine being a disciple right now. It's like, what is going on? We're just kind of, you know, I don't, I don't, I feel a bit uncomfortable. I don't know what Jesus is doing, where we're going, risking our lives. This guy's dead now. He's not. Jesus, you, you don't make any sense. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, "Now, who, what do we know Thomas about? What, 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 what's he famous for? Doubting Thomas. Okay, but so this 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 passage actually gonna flip the stereotypes on two people here." We think of Thomas as a doubting Thomas. That's what he gets labeled as. He just doubts. But watch Thomas. He's actually, which his name Didymus means twin. And I read some commentators, they believe either he was a twin, which is probably the most likely, or this other commentator was talking about how the ancient church tradition said he looked like Jesus. And so he had, when people trying to kill Jesus, they might mistake him for Thomas. But I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what they were saying in, in church tradition. So Thomas called Didymus, or twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And then again, die with who? Lazarus? Die with Jesus. Jesus' life is being threatened. Lazarus already died. Again, there's some little debate on what this actually meant. Most people lean toward dying with Jesus. Okay. Um, and Thomas may be actually not doubting Thomas, but devoted Thomas. Maybe saying, you know what? I don't understand all this mess either, but let's go with Jesus because if he's going to die, we'll die. And we know that if we keep reading, they, they, the disciples scatter. When the pressure cook, cooker gets going and the life gets hard, they, they do scatter, right? And they do have some issues. But he, he has this heart of, I'm devoted to this guy. I don't know what he's saying all the time. I don't even know what's happening here. He died, didn't die. But I'm gonna, let's go with Jesus because if we're going to die, let's die with him. And so Thomas is actually devoted Thomas in this, in this situation. That's what I'll call him. Verse 17, upon his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them at the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. All right, again, what do we know Martha for? If you know anything Bible background, what was Martha known for? Being busy, being too busy in the home and caught up with the chores and just busy Martha. Mary's at the feet of Jesus. Where's, where's Mary now? Mary's at home. Martha's with, coming out to Jesus. 
She left everything aside. She came out to Jesus. She's the first one to meet him. So Martha's breaking our stereotype too. We always think she's just, oh, poor Martha. She don't have any time for Jesus. And Mary, she's, but Mary's the one who's like, forget this. I'm staying at home. I don't care about Jesus. He didn't do anything for me. Right? It seems that way at least. She, she's more reluctant to come out and, and, and talk with Jesus. And we see some bitterness a little bit growing in them because they have a belief. They have a, 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 a knowledge that Jesus is able, but he didn't do anything. But Martha's the one that comes out. She meets him and she says this in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's, that's faith and that's disappointment mixed together. Faith and disappointment. Have, have you ever felt that way? Faith and disappointment mixed together. I, I know I have. I know God could. And that song would just say, I know you're able. I know you can. But sometimes you don't. Sometimes it doesn't happen. If you'd have been here, just shown up, my brother wouldn't have died. But then she says this, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. What a powerful statement, right? Those words are powerful. Sometimes we, we can speak life and faith in our words. She's speaking, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And you would think, okay, now Jesus will say, well, Lazarus is going to rise. Okay, amen. But watch what happens here. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. What does she say? Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. What does she say? Yeah, someday. She's not thinking right now. She's not thinking, God will give you whatever you ask, but it's probably not anything for me right now. It's probably something in the future. God will do anything, but ah, probably nothing right in this moment. This moment is a sad moment. This moment's no good. This, it, it already passed. So she's expressing faith Disappointment and a little bit of doubt. Sometimes this is a weird, you know, it all comes together in our lives. We don't always are just the most powerful. We have faith, but we have doubts. We have disappointment, but we have trust. This is how it works in our faith walk with the Lord. God will give you whatever you ask, but I'm not sure you're going to ask anything from me right now. Maybe in the future. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives, and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ. That's the Messiah. The son of God who is coming to the world. Again, it's a faith-filled statement. I believe. You kind of see in Martha, I believe in you, Jesus. I just don't really know what you're going to do. I don't know what's going to happen here. I know you got, I, I believe, but I'm struggling. You know, I believe in you. But I just don't really know what's going on here. Verse 28, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. But Mary heard this. She got up quickly and went to him. Now she's moving. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her. I see the drama, you know, there's a fight at school. Everybody goes and shh, let's see what's happening. You know, let's crowd around. I'm supposed to fight by the dumpster. Supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, faith and disappointment. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along 
with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The, the literal translation of those words there is, is almost he was angry. Not at Mary, not at Martha, not at anybody, but angry at the situation. Like trouble, like this, this is not how I designed the world to be. This is not what I intended when I created this world. That this suffering, this pain, this hurt would be like this. So Jesus, the one who was able to solve the problem, is in the middle of it and he's feeling the pain of people who go through hard times just like you and I. Verse 34, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, if, if you believe you can never memorize scripture. Verse 35 is your starting point. Jesus wept. All right, that's where I memorized the Bible verse today. You can do that. It's actually pretty powerful, though. Smallest verse in the Bible. Very powerful. Because so much is packed in that concept of God weeping. I mean, there's depths and depths of truth there. God is not so far removed. He just solves stuff. He's not Spock. If you're a Star Trek person who knows stuff and he's not touched by emotion, he's touched by our situations. Even though he can fix it, even though he can solve problems, he still feels our hurt and our pain. Then the Jews said, see how much, see how he loved him. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, which is the story we read before, have kept this man from dying? Hey, what happened here? This guy could do it. Why didn't he do it? Verse 38, Jesus once again, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. He's starting to decompose. And this is, she just said, you can, God will give you whatever you ask, but don't roll the stone away. He stinks. So what about God giving you whatever you ask? Sometimes what we say doesn't match with what we do. We have a hard time fitting it together. Verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So then they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. We'll keep reading this next little section. Therefore, the result of this, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Well, duh. Dude was dead. We were weeping for him. Comes from the grave. And what else would it take, right? Put your faith in someone that raises a guy that's decomposing from the grave and now he's alive. That, that you know, if... if if you and I were to see that and be a part of it, I mean, how would we respond, right? You would think with faith, oh my word, I got you know, I gotta respond to this. I gotta I gotta make a decision about who this person really is. And many of them put their faith, their belief that this is the, the Son of God, this is the Messiah that is coming to the world, and they put their faith in him. But look at this. But 
Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Why so that the Pharisees would believe? No, because they're being little tattletales. These are the folks that, you know what? A guy came out of the grave. He, this guy prayed, he's alive. Rather than putting my faith in this situation, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna try to make sure he gets in trouble. I'm gonna try to, you know, I, rather than responding in faith, I'm gonna respond with, with, with anger and bitterness and, and I'm gonna push this away. This is so interesting. The lack of faith of these people. A guy is raised from the dead and these people still don't want to believe. So they go to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees call a meeting of the entire Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council. What are we accomplishing? Well, not much. What are they trying to accomplish anyway? Here's a man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Well, maybe they should. And then, here's the kicker, though. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what it boils down to is we've got a lot to lose here. And we don't want to lay our junk down. We want to hold on to our stuff. And this guy's threatening our position. He's threatening our place. He's threatening our life as it is. Just like we looked at last week. The parents. They don't want to give up their synagogue their place in the synagogue. They didn't want to give up that. They didn't want to risk that. So they said, you know, we don't want to really deal with this. We'll let the guy deal on his own. Here's the even more. You know, a guy was raised from the dead by this man. People are believing him. But you know what? This is a problem because we might have to lose something in the process. This is going to re restructure our world, our lives. And we're not sure we want that. But no matter what he does, we're not going to believe because we don't want to give up what we got. This is, this is that hard heart that says, you know what, I'm just going to keep going the way I'm going no matter what happens. There's nothing that's going to change my mind. Well, this morning, let's, uh, let's try to break this down. And, and we kind of went through the whole story. But I want to address a couple things. And when we get down to one, two, and three, I'll, I'll fix my actual incorrect. I deleted out the wrong thing and added something when I was making my notes. I just realized that this morning. So we'll get there. I'll change it. But first thing and foremost is that Jesus addresses the ultimate challenge in this story. This is something we can learn here. Jesus is addressing what I would call the ultimate challenge. This is uh, what some people call the problem of evil. But the ultimate challenge is this. How can God be all loving, if you want to fill in the blank there on A, and all powerful when there's so much pain, sorrow, and tragedy in the world? This has been one of the longest standing arguments, questions, doubts as it relates to believing in a all loving and all powerful God. How do we reconcile pain, hurt, tragedy with the love of God and the power of God? How does that work? Because this is the argument that's made. Either he's all loving, but not powerful enough to act and do something to help. So maybe he's all loving, He's grandpa in the sky that just loves everybody, gives them all Werther's Originals, but he can't really fix the problem. The Werther's Originals is not going to fix it. Makes you feel good for the moment, but he can't really fix the big problems. Or maybe he's all powerful. He's this all powerful deity. He's, he's, you know, he could do anything, but he doesn't care. And that's a lot of religions where God may not be concerned about your stuff because he doesn't have to be. He's a creator. He made everything and he's powerful, but does he care? Does he have to be? 
But see, Christianity preaches, and, and even Judaism, a God that, that loves the world. But how does that work when the world is so messed up? How does that work when 17 kids are killed in a school in Florida by a gunman? These are the questions. This is the age-old question that's raised by a lot of people who are struggling with faith. Where was God? Where was God in this tragedy? Where was God in this, this hurricane came through and all these people lost their homes? Where was God in that? Couldn't have God done, could he done something? If he's all-powerful, he could, right? If he loves people, wouldn't he? Because wouldn't love prevent and wouldn't love keep all these tragedies from happening? This is the struggle. Epicurus, a guy who lived 250 BC, a Greek philosopher, is one who raised this question. Back, back in, before Jesus even came around, they were talking about this stuff and he raised this question. He was challenging it. David Hume, a Scottish philosopher in the 1700s, and this is probably more than you ever cared to know, but if you want to look it up, he raised this question, challenging how God could be loving, powerful, and there's all this stuff going on. It's not possible. There's modern street-level arguments that go on today. You may be talking with somebody at work or just somebody you know, or you get, especially if you get on the internet, there's some news story. People post and post and post and all their little comments. It's always, man, how can you believe in a God that lets all these tragedies happen? That's crazy. That's usually what it boils down to. That's one of the most common arguments people make. And Jesus, I believe, is addressing that in this story. He's addressing love, power, and pain all together. When we try to make an attempt to explain this, uh, theologians call it a theodicy. A theodicy. If you're wondering how to spell that, it's T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. And that is an attempt to reconcile this, a vindication of the divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. One of the earliest ones is in the book of Job. How could God allow Job to go through these things? And the, the, and the friends try to provide some sort of reasoning. Yeah, well, you deserved it. Um, others try to provide some sort of reasoning. How do we reconcile? This is some of the oldest stuff that we deal with. How does this work? Where's God when tragedy comes? Let me give you four real quick. These are not on your sheet. You'll have to write them on there. These are, these are not the best notes I've ever come up with. I'll just be honest with you. I could have done better. But you can also write. Hopefully your pen works. So punch us into that little blank there. Number one, I'll call this new definitions, theodicy. This basically, this argument would say, you know, our definitions are messed up. So when we come to omnipotence, God being all-powerful, maybe we don't really truly understand what omnipotence is. So we say God can do anything. Well, maybe there's things he doesn't do. Like the old uh, philosophy, could God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it up? Mental gymnastics. I mean, it doesn't even make sense, right? So maybe we don't understand everything about omnipotence. You know, maybe God is limited. And so some people push that forward. I don't know. That's, that's one. Or maybe we don't understand love. That, that could be possible. Uh, love, maybe our definition of what love really does is not correct. So that's the new definition. We need to redefine things. We don't understand those things. Number two would be a free will defense. This is a guy named Alvin Plantinga, who'd be one person that promotes this. Is in, in a world where there's free will, where people make decisions, and God gives us the ability to choose, there is going to be the possibility for sin. There's going to always be the possibility for people choosing contrary to God. So this is an argument that's put forward, and it has some power and some weight. Especially in those situations like the one in, in Florida. 17 kids are killed, but what happened? Somebody made a choice, right? Free will. They chose to do something that was contrary to what God would want. 
And, and there's others would say that's not as strong, and there's all sorts of arguments here and there. But that's that is something that people propose that, that there's you can't create a world with free will that does not create possibilities for tragedy because people choose to do things that are contrary to God. Number three, this would be called the soul making theodicy. God is sanctifying us through hardship and evil and making us something we could never be. God is sanctifying us through hardship. And if we didn't experience tragedy, then we would become everything God would intend for us to be. And sometimes through, and we'll see this in, in the story here, sometimes through the worst tragedies, God does his best miracles. And God does his best work in us through the worst things. And so sometimes that can be it. And sometimes that can be a good thing to hold on to when we're going through difficulty is that, you know, this may not be what I want, but God is doing something through this and shaping me. And number four is this, and, and this would be called, I would just call it limited perspective. That in all of our arguments and all of our re rationality of what God's up to, we have to acknowledge our limited perspective. That just because we can't understand it doesn't mean that there's not some logic or sense to it somewhere. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. And this is what so many people, I think, fail to see, is that, well, I don't get how God would do this and this, so God isn't real. Well, who made us the, the biggest genius in the world that knows everything? I mean, it's still hard. We have, to, we have to process everything through what God's given us in our own mind, but we got to admit our own inability to understand things. We don't get everything. We don't have God's perspective. We don't have an internal perspective. We're limited. And so we have to, if we understand our limited perspective, sometimes... It can help us make sense of the horrors and evils that happen. If you think of a two-year-old or think of Lily, my daughter, when she's got to go to the dentist and get some tooth work, she's like, no, no, no. I mean, it's the worst thing ever, but it's going to, if you got to get the tooth out, you got to, you know, you got something going on. And if you leave it there, it's going to be worse. But sometimes for younger kids, especially even when she was younger than she is now, I mean, we had to put her under. I mean, because she could not, she did not want to deal with the toothache, um, but it needed to be dealt with. And so she had a limited perspective on what really needed to happen for her life to be better. She just thought, this is going to be painful. I don't want to do it. But we knew, hey, as your parents, this is going to be the best thing for you because you can't go on living with that today. So those are kind of four theodicies. There's others as well. But in this story, Jesus puts both his love and power on display. This is what I want us to understand. In this story, Jesus is showing us in the midst of this tragedy his love and power very clearly. Look at these verses. I put them on the sheet. Verse 3. It says this in the beginning of the story. Lord, the one you love is sick. Lazarus is dear to Jesus. They, everybody knew that. Verse, verse 5. Again, it says Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There's no question. Jesus loved. Verse 36. The Jews said, see how much he loved him. His love is there. Everybody sees it. Verse 35, it's not on there. Jesus wept. Why would he weep? Because, um, you know, he was just emotional. No, he loved these people. He, he felt their pain. Verse 33, he was troubled, deeply moved in his spirit, troubled. Jesus felt what was going on. Verse 38, Jesus once more, deeply moved, came into the tomb. We can see the love of Jesus in the story. He's not, I don't care about your problems. I, you know, whatever. You have to deal with them. He is in the midst of this, showing his love. And we see his power. Verse 43. 3 to 44, when he said this, Jesus called out a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. He's the power to raise this man from the dead. His power and his love are evident in the story. In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of hardship. 
Jesus also demonstrates his love and power in the face of his own sufferings. Look at the cross. His love leads him to the cross to destroy sin's power in our lives. His power brings him out of the grave to destroy death forever. His love and power are present in his own sufferings. He didn't have to go to the cross. He chose to. He willingly went for us. He faced his own sufferings that were far worse than probably anything we ever faced. He faced the most brutal way to die known to the world at that time. And he did it out of love. And he lifted himself out of power, the power of God, out of the grave to destroy death in our lives. So Jesus, even though we may not always understand what he's doing, what God is doing in our life, we can trust by what he has already done for us. And by what he's demonstrated on the cross, that his love, his power are always present, even in the midst of our sufferings. So let me share with you three points, because that makes it a sermon. If you don't have three points, it's not really a sermon. It's just a talk or something. So let me give you three, and let me correct the one. But first one is this. Actually, one and two, in fact, are just one. So just know that. You can add in the second point in between two and three. So one and two is this. Death is the path to life, or you could put it this way, number two there. The path to life leads through death. Death is the path to life. The path to life leads through death. This is what, it, when you, who's ever exercised and lift weights and worked out, and you feel like you're about to die, right? I go and play basketball occasionally, and I literally feel like I'm going to pass out, throw up, uh, you know, I mean, like, what am I doing? If you go run, you haven't run in a while, so, um, you feel like you're going to have a heart attack. But in all that, you're bringing life to your body. You're exercising. You're maybe you're working out. You're breaking your muscles down. You're killing your muscles, but they're going to grow back healthier and stronger. That's the point of it. And sometimes in our life, the deaths we experience are the path to life. They're what God uses, just like the soul-making theodicy. They're what God uses to bring about his greatest work in us. Lazarus had to die in order to experience the resurrection power of Jesus. Lazarus would have never experienced that had he not gone through death. He would have just been a dude that Jesus was close to. But now he had a whole new testimony, a whole new story, a whole new way. Actually, we find in chapter 12 to minister to others through what he went through. People were says, let me read this to you. People are saying, it's verse 11. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Account of Lazarus. Lazarus' story. Listen to what God did for me. That could be the truth in your life. The deaths you've gone through are the, the way that God will use to minister to other people. But you had to go through it. You had to trust God. He had to bring you through all that in order for you to have a testimony to minister to other people. Lazarus had to be four days in the grave. But now all these people are coming to, to the Lord because of his testimony. Jesus, like I said, had to endure the cross to bring us eternal life, discipleship, following Jesus. What does he say? Deny yourself and pick up your what? Your cross. What is a cross? Object of death. Deny yourself. Pick up your object of death and follow me. There's a type of death that comes with following Jesus, but it's a death that brings about greater life. It's so hard to understand, but when we experience it, it's so powerful. The next chapter, John chapter 12, Jesus puts it this way, talking of his own death and talking about those who follow him. He says, very truly, I tell you, 12, 24 through 26, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, 
it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Maybe that's what God's up to in your life. He's wanting to produce many seeds, but it's going to require a death, a death to something, giving up something that we want to hold on to. It says this in verse 25, he goes on and says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. But anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Does that mean we hate life? Oh man, I hate life. My job, my boss, man. No, that's not what I'm saying. Don't be griping about your life. But saying, you know what? What I want most is not the comfort of my life, like the Pharisees. All we have, we have everything we need. We've got a temple, we got, we don't want anything to mess with this. But it's the ability to say, you know what? I have all this, but I would put this aside for what you want to do, God. I don't need all this. I need you. I need you. This is what Jesus is getting at. He says, whoever serves me must follow me. Where did he go? He went to the cross. Where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor those who serve me. But Jesus also went through the grave and to resurrected life. And that's the promise to all who follow Jesus. It's not just the cross, but life and resurrection. Amen. Abundant life. That's what Jesus is. He's not saying, you know, it's just going to be all death and destruction. But he's saying, you know what, you're going to have to give some things up so that you can receive this abundant life that I'm giving you. It doesn't just come cheaply. It comes through sacrifice and giving up and laying down your life for what I want to really give you. So are you experiencing a death right now? Maybe you're going through suffering, hardship, difficulty, something that you would not want. Rather than seeing this as evidence that God doesn't exist, that God doesn't care, that God can't help, see it as evidence that God is birthing in you new life. Number two, I have to write this in. We must choose to trust God's timing. We must choose to trust God's timing. Very often, God's timing does not make sense. Very often, God's timing is not our timing. But God is up to something grander than what we can see. I'm sure Lazarus would have preferred, much preferred to avoid the grave. Sisters and everybody, let's just say the word, he'll be healed. Just like he did, rub some mud, spit in the ground. We don't care. We don't want to go to the grave. Just do something. But Jesus waited. He said, I'm not going to do anything this time. I got something different for you. He did all this so Lazarus could go through and, and get to a new life and a new, new level of ministry. We think sometimes it's too late for God. Mary, Martha, both echo this, the phrase, if you would have been here, if you would have, this would have happened, but it's too late. You would have kept this man from dying, but Jesus has intentionally bad timing sometimes in our life to do his greatest work, his greatest miracles. Where do you need to trust God's timing this morning in your life? Maybe there's an area where you're wondering, where is God going to show up? Because it's been so long. Trust Him. He is up to His greatest miracles when He's taking His time. Verse 3, or uh, last one, number 3. Jesus will always draw mixed reviews. You would think the conclusion of the story would be, I mean, amazing. The whole region comes to Christ and there's a revival and some do but here's the thing, some do but others, this is even more evidence of why they don't want to follow it some people are, are, are going to never, this is the sad reality, some people have hardened their hearts so much that they cannot see what God is doing and this is sad because we, we work with people like this, we, maybe they're our family members our friends and, and it, it, it pains us 
But sometimes God could, he could raise the dead and people are like, no, we want to kill this guy. He could do the, anything in the world. And, you know, I shared this the week before, Jesus talking to the rich man Lazarus and that story where even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe. That's, that's what happens here. People, someone came back from the dead and no, they didn't want to believe. So, you know, Jesus is always going to draw mixed reviews no matter what happens. There's always going to be people that are arguing how foolish it is to, to serve God. How, I mean, how, there's no evidence for any of this. This is ridiculous. There's, there's always going to be people beating that drum. You're going to encounter them no matter what you do, no matter how much witness, how much Holy Spirit you got in your life, how much, you know, praise music you were listening to in the morning. You're always going to encounter somebody that's going to say, man, that's the foolish thing I've ever seen. You, wait, you believe in God? What's wrong with you? You're always going to encounter people. Because that's, even Jesus raising Lazarus, there was mixed reviews. We have to be prepared for that. We can't let that steal our joy and our faith when we come up against somebody that just is going to be contrary to, to what we believe. This is just how it always is. There's believers and unbelievers. The response to Jesus has always been divisive. Those who trust, those who believe, and those who choose not to. I wish it weren't so, but that's just how it is. And it's painful to live in a world like that, but that's the world in which we are called to live and called to be a light and be a witness. Because the bottom line is we don't know who is called to salvation. When we live and we shine our light for him, we don't know this. Some of maybe, man, I think, you know, one day they're totally against God and you don't know how God can turn their heart. That person may go on in unbelief their whole life, you don't know. But God may have something for them as well. And our light and our witness can make a difference. So don't get discouraged when you see people with mixed reviews and, man, something so awesome. And then people are, you know, people down at Billy Graham when he died. I mean, all, you know, all person is down. Like, oh, well, let's come up with something bad about Billy Graham now, you know. That's how people are. There's some people who are going to find negative in everything. But don't let that steal your joy as you live for Christ. As you live at work and people are all, oh, I can't believe you go to church. It's foolishness. Okay, well, praise God. I'm going to live, I'm going to be full of love and full of life. And maybe one day God will, will grab a hold of that person's heart. We pray for them, we lift them up. But we can't change anybody, but God can. You know, all it boils down to is faith. And, and Kyle, if you, would, if you would come this time. You know, Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? And I think she did. But she still struggled. I think she believed. She said she did. And then. Here comes to pull the stone away. She's like, I don't know if we should do this. This is a risk. This is weird. So it comes down to faith in our lives. Everyone at the end of the day is going to have faith. Faith in something. Faith in their own selves. Faith in their own ability to be logical and think and understand and, and have their arguments and all this. Faith in their own ideas, their own intelligence. Faith in what makes sense to them. But everybody builds their life on faith. You can't escape it. Because none of us are omnipotent. None of us are all-knowing, uh, all omniscient. None of us have that ability, so we have to fill in the gaps with faith. Whether you are faith in Christ or faith in whatever else, everybody does. And that's something as you're living your life in the world, you can gently bring that up. You know, everybody believes something. They believe this about the universe, these realities, this is right, this is wrong. Everybody holds the things, whether they see it or not. So we cannot escape faith, but we can miss Jesus. And we don't want to do that. 
We want to encounter him in our lives. We want to see him. John, 1 John, the same writer, 1 John 3, 2 says that when we see Jesus, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And I believe a lot of the questions, a lot of the struggles that we go through, they will just fade away when we actually see Jesus face to face. All of the stuff that we were worried about, concerned about, the things that didn't make sense, why this, why that, when we actually see Jesus, there's a term for that, it's called the beatific vision. When you see Jesus for who he is, all of this other stuff is going to fade to the background and it's going to, it's going to make sense or it's not going to matter. One or the other. So the, the whole point of this, this series, this message, and all of this is, is about encountering Jesus. That's what we need. We don't need arguments as much as we need to know who Jesus is in our life. We don't need to know this, this, and this. We need to know who he is. We need to encounter him, experience him in our life. We need the spirit of God living in us, breathing life in us. So even when we don't know what to say, God can fill us with words of wisdom that are not our own. So we need to encounter him. This morning, if you're going through difficulty, Jesus is there. He loves you. He's able. I don't know what will happen. I don't know the future, but I know he loves you. And I know he's able. Maybe you have questions this morning. What, what's God up to? Why? This doesn't make sense. Keep seeking him. Trust him. Maybe God's timing is not your timing right now. You're waiting for God to do something and you're wondering what he's up to. God's timing is perfect. He knows what he's doing. This morning, maybe we all need to die to something in our lives to experience the life that God wants to give us. I don't know where you're at this morning, but what I want to do this, what I want to do is, is just conclude with worship. We're going to sing, I surrender all. That's what it's all about. Laying ourselves down, all the stuff we're holding on to, and giving it to the Lord. So this is how we'll conclude. However you'd like to sing, if you'd like to stay where you are, if you want to come forward, that's fine. But let's just sing this. Let's sing it as a prayer. I surrender all.